Well, hello and welcome back. We're here for another episode. Yay! I get to gossip with my favourite daughter. And I get to gossip with my favourite mum. So tell us, Tess, what have you got lined up for us today? This is something that I've been seeing a ton of. So anybody listening will not be surprised that that means we are talking about <gasps> drum roll, Ozempic. Woo! Um, this is everywhere, isn't it? This stuff and people's story with it and whether we should or shouldn't be doing it. Yes, I've been seeing a ton of Ozempic and a lot of that is coming from celebrities that are dropping a lot of weight quickly. Almost all the comments are like, oh, Ozempic queen or looks like someone's doing Ozempic. So I think whether it's confirmed or not, anytime somebody drops a lot of weight very quickly at this point, in a, you know, in a short period of time, people are kind of assuming it's Ozempic because it feels like it's really everywhere. Even I, who doesn't look at TikTok, I'm constantly seeing things about Zempic in all manner of places. So I think your idea today was not so much to talk about should people be doing it, is it cheating, that kind of thing. I think you had a bit of a different perspective. Yeah, well, so it's funny because my friends and I have been talking about it, obviously, because while I don't know anyone personally, I have a friend who's co-workers. Actually, one of them won her company weight loss competition, and then she found out afterwards that they were on Ozempic, which we feel like is sort of doping the company (laughs) weight loss challenge. I know, I was like, that's like the Lance Armstrong of your company. We've had this interesting discussion of, well, is that really fair? Because they all paid to enter this work weight loss competition, and that seems like quite an advantage. But that got us on to talking about how does it actually work? Does it burn more calories or does it make you less hungry? How does it actually work? Because we've been hearing about it constantly, but we don't actually know what it is doing. So I was hoping that you could help me figure that out. I think the place to start is to think about what makes us hungry What do you think is going on in the body that then causes us to think, oh, I really quite fancy a sandwich. Any ideas? Based on the fact that my brain is constantly telling me that I'm looking for a sandwich, I I would think it's something in your head that's saying, oh, we're hungry now. You've told me before that the brain is getting signals from other parts of the body. So I don't know if your stomach's feeling hungry and then it's sending a signal to the brain that's like feed us that's a great explanation it's a communication between our gut our stomach and the natural fat parts of our intestines and our brain that then results in our brain going okay now i'm going to make you feel hungry and in fact we actually have two sets of signals we have inputs to the brain that go time to eat time to eat time to eat And we have other inputs to the brain that go, hey, feeling full, feeling full, feeling full. It's the balance of those that determines whether we feel hungry or not. Is it like a seesaw where one side of the seesaw is telling you we're full and one side's telling you we're hungry? And then once all the weight is enough to push down one side, that's going to be when you're feeling that? Can I just say there was a great pun there? All the weight is going to press down? Oh, I didn't even think about that. (laughs) Absolutely. You can think about things that make us hungry, things that make us feel full. And when that seesaw tips in one direction, then we're going to get that sense of I'm full or I need to eat. Or to use your analogy, if that seesaw is balanced in the middle in between meals, I'm not feeling particularly full, but I'm not feeling particularly hungry either. Okay, so can I put a a guess in that Ozempic is going to be like the extra person sitting on the side of the seesaw that says you're not hungry so that it's going to skew you that way? Okay, so you're saying Ozempic is acting like a person on the full side, the side that weighs down the I'm feeling full side. 
So while ordinarily you have a person on each side and they bounce back and forth like on a seesaw, Ozempic <laughs> would be the second person on that other side. So now you've got two people on one side. That's going to make you more often lean to that side. You're quite right, really. That what's, What Ozempic seems to be doing is it's contributing to us feeling full and that helps to reduce our sense of I need to eat. Because think about that Thanksgiving, what do we call it? Food baby. When your belly's full... You don't have an appetite, do you? You don't want to eat anymore. So a Zempic definitely seems to be working that way through that part of the seesaw. Got it. Okay. Could I add just a couple of little chemical names in there, Tess? Because I think if anybody looks this up, they're going to hear these names. Yeah, go for it. I'm going to talk about GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1. Most of the time, scientists don't use very interesting ways of naming things. There is a gene and a protein called sonic hedgehog, which is about as imaginative as scientists have got. But normally they stick to naming chemicals through some pretty hard and fast biochemical rules, which is why to the layperson we end up with names like glucagon-like peptide that we're thinking, what on earth is that? I'm assuming you've never heard of that. Glucagon peptide? (laughs) Glucagon-like peptide. So It's going to surprise you, but I don't think I've heard that before. It sounds like something Elon Musk would name his child. I believe the next one in the pipeline, that's exactly what it's going to be. And the middle name's going to be Ozempic. Yeah, yeah. So, glucagon-like peptide. The first thing to say is, peptide is just really another word for protein. And we've all heard of proteins. We take proteins in our diet, like if you eat a steak, proteins are in vegetables. Proteins are in everything, really. These are the building blocks. You know, our muscles are made of protein lots of protein helping to make organs and in fact our bones as well so proteins are really important we happen to produce something called glucagon so glucagon like peptide is telling you that it's a protein that's like this thing called glucagon people are looking up ozempic they're definitely going to see discussion of this glp1 why do you think we have glp1 what was your seesaw thing that you told us a few minutes ago Yeah, about the seesaw teeters between telling you you're hungry and telling you you're full. And remember what you guessed that Ozempic does? Oh, okay. So I guess that Ozempic was on the side telling you you're full. And so I'm guessing GLP is the chemical that goes to your brain that tells you that. That is just brilliant. (laughs) Oh, I just saw my levels in this recording go off the scale there. I got so excited. (gasps) Yes, GLP-1 is something that we all produce and we produce it and we release it in our gut when we're eating. So that as we eat, we produce more of this GLP-1. It does a couple of things. And this sounds a bit funny. It actually slows down the release of food from our stomach into our our intestines. If we go back to high school biology, take food in, it goes into our stomach and then it moves into our intestines and all sorts of wonderful things happen with it. Well, the longer that food stays in our stomach, bigger our stomach gets and we get to feel full. Okay, so GLP-1 slows down the emptying of our stomach, making us feel bigger and fuller. But it also, GLP-1 goes up to our brain, just in case our brain hasn't got the message from the stomach and says, hey brain, we're feeling full. So when you have people that that disease or something where you, you're never full and you just keep eating, keep eating, is that because they've got an issue with this GLP-1? Oh my gosh. People are going to think that I have scripted this for you, Tess. Can we just park that for a moment? And can you make sure that I come back to it in a few minutes? Absolutely. Because it's really good. 
We've got GLP-1. We all produce this. It's released by our intestines as we eat. It acts on the stomach to stop the stomach releasing food into the intestines. That makes the stomach get bigger and bigger and makes us feel fuller and fuller. GLP-1 also travels from our intestines in our bloodstream up to our brain and gives a second signal to the brain, hey, I'm feeling full. It's doing two jobs at once. Yeah, and both of the jobs have the same end result, but it's making sure by doing it two ways, by acting on the stomach and by acting on the brain, it's making darn sure that we get this signal, hey, stomach full, stomach full, stomach full, stop eating. Got it. I think you said this, Ozempic acts like GLP-1. It's a drug that mimics the actions of something that we already produce. Is it giving you extra of that? That's absolutely it. Ozempic wasn't developed in the first place as an appetite reducer. It was developed for helping people with diabetes because it pokes the pancreas into releasing insulin. And for some forms of diabetes, people don't have enough insulin. Then it was discovered, hey, people who are taking this drug seem to be losing weight. And then people, as in scientists, looked a little bit more at that and went, well, how could this be happening? And then they discovered that it was acting like GLP-1. So it was essentially giving you an extra dose of GLP-1. That makes sense too, because aside from hearing about it, because celebrities have been supposedly doing it, I've been hearing about it because people who have diabetes, I think have been finding it harder to get this medication because now people are getting it for these weight issues. And then the people that need it for diabetes don't have it. And so that's when I was like, oh, okay. So it's clearly doing something outside of just making people lose weight. It's also used as a medication for diabetes. There is potentially an arising issue for people who need this to save their lives because if you can't produce enough insulin that's potentially something that's going to cause you to die. There's quite a few twists and turns in that story but at its simplest diabetics have to have sufficient insulin otherwise they will not survive. So it is definitely a problem if we've got people using a drug to lose weight which may well make them healthier but if it means that that's reducing the supply for people for whom this could be a life-saving drug then that's definitely an issue that needs to be considered absolutely the last thing i think we ought to mention here that thought i asked you to park you know the one you said about people who don't feel full do they perhaps have less glp yeah that's what i'm curious about because i i saw this thing once about this man that was never full and so he just never got the signal to stop eating I didn't want to go too nerdy about this, but if we were to talk about the factors that make you feel hungry, we've got hormones such as something called ghrelin. I'm just going to give you a great big long list now just to blow your mind. We've got ghrelin, motilin. If your plasma glucose, your blood sugar level is falling, these are all agents that make us feel hungry. Other things like leptin, cholecystokinin, gosh, that's a mouthful, isn't it? The activation of stretch receptors in your gut, these make us feel full. When we think about people not feeling full. It could be that they've got too much of one or not enough of another. It's hard to tie it down to just one factor. Can they compensate for each other? So let's say you've got one of those that isn't working very well, but if you have another one, can it make up the difference or do they all need to be at certain levels? Certainly, we are more than just I feel hungry because I have a lot of this factor. I feel full because I have a lot of this factor. It's a complex interaction between all of them. And if one of them is a bit low and one of them is a bit high, it might make up for that. So yes, the the interaction probably compensates for a deficit or an excess in one, at least sometimes. So what I'm hearing is when you eat, there's all these different little people in your stomach that have jobs and they're showing up to work and helping you feel full or hungry but if one of them's having a bad day maybe they've got 
a lot going on in their home life, then the other employees can make up for it. But then if you've got a lot of employees constantly having bad days, that might be when you start to have an issue. I'm just in science heaven right now. Yep. <laughs> I'm not going to add anything to that explanation. Okay. To finish off with your GLP thought, could it be that our person who never feels full, perhaps if we wanted to expand that and say, are we looking at some people who don't seem to get senses of fullness and therefore eat more, become a little bit heavier, get a bit of a higher BMI if we're using BMI? Could that be down to GLP? Well, I had exactly the same thought. I am fascinated by the gut biome. Almost every week we are seeing something, another paper published about these bacteria and how they might affect our health in all sorts of different ways. I was actually listening to an episode of The Diary of CEO, which is a podcast I really like with Stephen oh, Bartlett. Yes. And, and he had a guest on there who said that he used to believe the stuff about calories and all that and that he's decided that he really thinks the gut is the main culprit and that you don't have the right balance of gut bacteria that's making it harder for you to lose weight so there's a lot to be discovered about the gut bacteria every one of us has about three pounds of gut bacteria if you think about them like an organ three pound gut bacteria organ it's bigger than our heart it's bigger than our kidneys so to think that we've not been considering these gut bacteria until about the last 10 years is kind of interesting isn't it just to make sure I got this right, we've got three pounds of bacteria just chilling in there. Or maybe doing useful or even not useful things. So this is where I was very interested with GLP-1 because I had the GLP-1 thought in my head and the, okay, well, Ozempic works by acting like GLP-1. What about if some people naturally have more GLP-1 or some people naturally have less GLP-1? So that was what I had going on in one side of my brain. Other side of my brain, I had gut bacteria, gut bacteria, gut bacteria, because I think that we are discovering that these bacteria really seem to be different in different people. And there's some evidence that suggests a certain type of gut bacteria might promote weight loss, a certain type of gut bacteria might promote weight gain. So I Google searched GLP-1 gut bacteria and lo and behold I found some interesting stuff out there that suggested absolutely that different gut bacteria can actually encourage us to produce more GLP-1 and other gut bacteria don't. So, so here's the fascinating thing. If you're somebody who really gets full pretty quickly, doesn't have a particularly large appetite, are able to leave half the food on your plate, that might be not because you have a super willpower, but it might be because you have a higher proportion of bacteria in your gut that are helping your body to produce more GLP-1. So it's the bacteria which make your body produce more GLP-1, which makes your brain go full, full, full when you've only eaten half of what's on your plate. Other people might not be so lucky, if we want to use that term there, with their gut bacteria, they are producing less GLP-1, thanks stinky bacteria, and so they have to eat more before they get the sense of fullness. So what I'm hearing is the DIY option to Ozempic would be to focus on your gut health and try and improve that. Tell you what, this has just been too much of a day for me. <laughs> <laughs> this is really nice, Mum. <laughs> yes, absolutely. The only difficulty is... We don't know yet which gut bacteria are responsible for which particular actions. 
We don't really know how to change the makeup of our gut bacteria. You know, more of this, let's have less of that. We're now getting into the field of faecal transplants, which have certainly been considered as having a role in this, but we'll perhaps leave that for another day. But yes, gut health almost certainly can affect things like our appetite, our sense of fullness, as well as whether we develop dementia. How amazing is that for tiny, tiny, tiny little things which we'll never, ever see? That is funny too, because I think usually when I hear the word bacteria, I think of it in a bad way, or like an infection or E. coli. But it actually sounds like poor bacteria has gotten a bad rap and that it's actually not so bad if it's doing the right stuff. We typically don't hear about the unsung heroes, the good bacteria that are doing useful stuff for us. We only hear about bacteria usually when somebody has an infection and they're going to have to have antibiotics because they've got too much of a bad bacteria, a disease ill health causing bacteria but there are lots of bacteria i'll just give you this little for instance we have bacteria that live on our skin that we want to keep we can call them good bacteria and what's good about these bacteria is they have no effect on us but they take up space on our skin and they help digest our dead skin cells and if you lose those good bacteria it makes space for disease-causing bacteria to come in and use the space and eat our nutrients and potentially enter into the body. So we keep those good bacteria on our skin almost as like little infantry soldiers that keep the bad bacteria away. Yeah, they're, so they're like people. There's good, good ones and bad ones. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, bacteria are like people. There's good ones, there's meh ones, and there's bad ones. Mm-hmm. And we just hope that most of the time we've got good ones. We do. And mark my words, what we're going to see a lot of in the next 20 years, I think, is more discovery, more understanding of which of the bacteria are good bacteria and what are they doing for us. And from that, how could we possibly manipulate them? Wow, I never thought we were going to end up quite here on this discussion of Ozempic. So what that's really interesting then is Ozempic isn't just this miracle thing that's making you lose weight. When you eat the food, it's not making you digest the food differently, it sounds like. It's more so that it's just making you eat less because you're less hungry because your brain gets this signal that it's full more often. That's spot on. And in fact, have you heard anything about the side effects that people experience on Ozempic? Yes. Well, it's so funny you said that because I was thinking about that one of them is nausea, I think. And is that because it's getting too much of the signal? Like, we're, we're too full, we're too full, and now we feel like we don't need well, to throw up. I think that's quite possible. You know, I thought about, okay, so GLP-1 makes us feel full. It stops the stomach from, or it reduces the rate of the stomach emptying. So I thought the kinds of side effects that people are likely to have are feelings of discomfort, bloating, feeling overly full. And in fact, when you look at the side effects, they are things like nausea and vomiting. Well, that may come from the stomach being too full constipation because there that would appear that the azempic is not just slowing down the stomach but it's actually slowing down movement throughout your intestines so you get a bit backed up that exactly fits with what we know about azempic we would predict that people would get to feel full and that's useful but that might manifest itself as feeling a bit full and that could make us feel nauseous maybe even vomit if we're not emptying our stomach properly but that also could lead to constipation if we're just slowing down everything through the gut so ozempic acts exactly how we think it'll act in terms of its useful actions and its side effects are exactly what we would predict as well so then if you're one of the people that gets the side effects is that because you've got a different balance of gut bacteria I did read that um, lots of people have these side effects, then find that they ebb away. 
But that's kind of getting into medical territory, which obviously I'm not a medical doctor, so I should be a bit careful of that. But yes, for every drug that you can think of, different people have different range of side effects. I'm sure Ozempic is going to be the same. And as it's working on the gut, you might imagine that particular bacteria that you have in your gut might influence both how well Ozempic works for you and potentially the side effects that you develop. So I have a question for you. When I heard about this, my first thought was in 10 years, you're going to see those ads on TV. Did you take Ozempic? If so, you're entitled to compensation because it seems too good to be true that you take this thing and then you just lose all this weight. You're good to go. Aside from those side effects in the moment, is there any indication that it's going to cause long term damage or like you have to be on it for your entire life? Or is there not really enough out there about it yet? Definitely the latter is part of it. But I think stuff that I've looked at suggests that if people don't develop different eating habits, then when they come off a Zempic, it is likely that they will put back on some of the weight. So that's a bad thing, if you like. But on the other hand, that rather says that Ozempic isn't permanently affecting your physiology, how you work. And maybe that's a good thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Because I'd be a little bit more concerned about taking a drug for three months that was maybe going to affect my physiology, my bodily functions forever. Yeah. It may be that people go on a Zempic forever. It may be that people go on a Zempic and then take holidays. You know, there are drugs that work like that. ADHD drugs, some of those, for instance, people take them and they take then little two-week holidays. So there's definitely a lot to be discovered. But I think one of the things that would give me some comfort about taking Ozempic is because it's mimicking a natural substance in the body that would give me some feelings of well it's probably not that likely to be terrible then that said I would be a little bit nervous about being on this for a long time because we just don't know we don't know and science has made some horrible mistakes in the past in the 1950s your doctor was telling you to smoke They said it was a good thing. I would like to think that we're somewhat past that, that the research that we do these days is much, 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 much better. But yeah, we can't say, we can't say, we can't say it's fine to be on it for 10 years. Scientists can say, you know, we think that it's probably safe, but they can't say that because we don't have the long term data. Okay, so kind of like using a cell phone. People say that that could be bad for you in the long term because of the radiation or something from your cell phone, but that we think it's probably fine, but we won't really know because we haven't had people using them for 60 years yet. Couldn't have said it better myself. Oh, thanks, (laughs) ma'am. You're very welcome. (laughs) Now, I just love this, and I hope our listeners did too. Yeah, me too. I think my thing with Ozempic was, is it like steroids where you don't just take steroids and get jacked? You do still have to put in the work. Now, it makes it easier and you build muscle quicker, but it's not just a magic thing that you take and then all of a sudden you're super muscular. So I was curious if Ozempic was the same. Like, do you still have to eat healthy and exercise and do all that stuff? Or is it this magical thing that just fixes it? So this is very interesting, very helpful. Good. And as always, if our listeners have any additional questions, we'd love to hear them, wouldn't we? Um, so yeah, you can find us on Instagram at the Who Told You That podcast, and you can either direct message us a question or you can just comment on one of the posts, and we will try to answer that in an upcoming episode. Absolutely. And if there's something else out there that you're really curious about, and you don't see that we've got a podcast lined up about that ask us we'd love to do something that we know people are interested in so feedback and let us know yeah definitely i think i might go and have a cup of tea now tess what about you i am going to shower because i came straight from crossfit to record this and as i'm sitting here i'm realizing i'm quite gross
And on that lovely note of oversharing, that means it's definitely time to go. Thanks, everybody, for joining us and see you all next time. Woo, see you then. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in. And as a reminder, our conversation here aims to pass along some interesting science and help you develop your sciencey thinking muscles. Neither of us are medical doctors or any type of healthcare professional. So we're absolutely not providing medical advice. You should see your medically qualified professional for that. And whilst all content provided is given in good faith, based on the scientific knowledge base available at the time of recording, if we misspeak or further research changes our understanding or that of the scientific community, we'll try our best to make any necessary corrections, either in a future episode or in our show notes. See See you next time. time!